I'd like to uh, invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And uh, we are in the midst of a series on Paul's letter to this church in Philippi. This morning we'll be uh, reading the first 11 verses of, of chapter 3. That's page 1828, I believe, in your pew Bibles, 1828, Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, For it's we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, In regard to the law, Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends in Jesus Christ, Philippians chapter 3 makes a really nice funeral text. In a nutshell, what Paul is telling us here is that in order to get into heaven, you need to present to God the righteousness of of Jesus Christ, as opposed to any righteousness that you can muster on your own. And if you do that, if you rely on the righteousness of Jesus and Him alone, you can be assured that He will accept you into, into His heavenly home. Now, don't get me wrong, that is a a really important message, and that is indeed the message of this text. And as someone who stands up at funerals and declares the gospel, that is the gospel in a nutshell, that we need the righteousness of Jesus Christ placed upon ourselves, and it's far, far, far better than any righteousness we can accumulate on our own. The gospel, in a nutshell, is right here in chapter 3. But 
I'm not sure that putting things in a nutshell, in other words, isolating and summarizing them, is always the best approach to understanding Scripture and God's will for us. It's good for advertisers, okay? For instance, there's a, a Geico commercial I've been hearing on the radio lately. It's a, a man proudly relating that whenever he would ask his father for life advice, his dad would sit him down, look him in the eye, and he would say, son, 15 minutes can save you 15% or more. Now, that might be true, and that's what the advertiser wants you to go home with, but there's probably some life advice that's missing from that, right? By the way, those commercials aren't nearly as good as the ones that you know, you're becoming your parents. Um, those are scary, actually. <clears throat> but what's good um, for advertisers in their approach to life might not be a very good approach to Scripture. And so instead of just asking, you know, the funeral message summary of Philippians 3 this morning, let's, let's try and broaden that out a bit, all right? And let's ask, first of all, how does this message, how does Philippians 3 fit into the letter to the Philippians as a whole? How does it fit into the whole book? For instance, how does this fit what we read this morning? How does this fit with what we talked about last week, right? Where Paul says, do everything without complaining and arguing. Does this fit in with that? Well, if you have been studying this letter with us uh, in this series, you've probably noted Paul's emphasis on community, right? There is a sense in this letter that if there's anything wrong with Philippi at all, with the church in Philippi, and you get the sense that there's really not much because he's always talking about joy, right? But you get this sense if there's anything wrong at all, it has to do with the unity of the body of Christ there. For instance, Paul uses the word partnership or fellowship over and over. It's that Greek word koinonia, as if not only to stress what they are, but what they are supposed to be, a fellowship, a partnership. He also, in chapter 1, he calls them to contend together as one man for the gospel, right? Stand together and contend as one person. He also tells them in chapter 2 to be like-minded and to consider others better than themselves. And basically, this is how you get along with each other, he says. Again, last week, don't bicker and complain. Realize and understand how that ruins the body of Christ. And then next uh, time when we get, not in the sermon, but when we get to our next chapter, you'll find that he actually calls out two specific members of the church, Euodia and Syntyche, and he basically tells them that it's time for them to get along with each other. You need to get along. And so, when we read Philippians 3, we have to keep all of this context in our minds. This context of perhaps infighting, this context maybe of bravado, of excessive self-interest, whatever it is that is threatening the unity of the body of Christ, we have to keep that in mind. 
So that's some of the context of this letter as a whole. And with that in mind, let's listen again to what Paul has to say here. And we'll begin with verse 2. We'll begin with verse 2. And this is how he starts. Beware. 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 Not just once, but three times. You don't pick it up in our English translation, but what Paul is saying is, watch out, watch out, watch out. Watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those evil workers. Watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. And suddenly you see that, well, Paul's got himself all worked into a lather. What is he so upset about here? And what he's upset about is these mutilators of the flesh, he calls them. Mutilators of the flesh. And what you have here is Paul is, is really in the Greek, he's using a pun. Okay? Pastor Brandon would have loved this text because he loved puns. But what Paul is doing here is he's making a pun on the word circumcision. Okay? In the Greek, the circ- circumcision literally means to cut around. Okay? And 50% of us here this morning just got a little uncomfortable. The word that Paul uses here is not circumcision, but it's the word concision. In the Greek, it means actually to cut up, which makes that 50% of us even more uncomfortable. Because what Paul is saying is that there are people in Philippi who are trying to turn circumcision into concision. There are people here who are not cutting around, but they are cutting up. They are mutilating the body of Christ. So what's what's that all about? Well, to understand what Paul is getting at here, to understand this concept of circumcision, again, we have to get a broader context, okay? And we have to look even farther than just the letter, of, the letter to the Philippians. And so let's, let's try and get a little more context, only this time let's go all the way back to the creation story, the beginning, okay? In the beginning. Let's consider the larger sweep of all of Scripture, You know how the story begins. In the beginning, God, right? In the beginning, God created. The story begins with a God who is actually a triune God. It's a triune God who creates. A God, in other words, who has always existed in community, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The same and yet different. And this God creates human beings, male and female, right? Male and female, He created them. Again, He creates a community, the same and yet different. And then this community is called to bear the image of God, to bear the image of God. Now, the image of God is a, is a really large concept, okay? But what I want us to see this morning is that the image of God in Genesis 1 is born by the man and the woman together. 
It's born by human beings together. Together they bear the image of God. Together they will rule the earth and subdue it in God's name. Together they will cultivate the earth and harness its potential. Together they will bear fruit. Together they will produce more families. And those families will bear fruit, right? Some will grow food and some will... Um, Some will sell that food. Some will build machines and others will create music. Each of them will be unique. But together, they will bear the image of God. And there will be many nations and many tribes and many peoples and many languages all living out the image of God together. There will be basses and altos, tenors and sopranos, and they will all sing the praises of God together. Together they will bear His image. One individual cannot bear the full image of God. It's something that we do together. Together. As we rule under God, as we serve one another, as we bless each other with life, we bear the image of God. Now that's the plan, right? That's Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, but then Genesis 3 happens. And we see that rather than spending their lives and their energy serving God, the man and the woman decide to take that authority, to take that rule that God has given them, and they decide to serve themselves, right? And they cultivate not only blessings for the people around them, but also curses for the people around them. And this, friends, is where circumcision enters the story. In Genesis 12, circumcision, God steps in to save. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant, okay? And the covenant is a promise. It's a partnership. If you were circumcised, okay, this was a sign that you had entered into a partnership with God. You had become a partner with God in His goal to bless all the families of the earth, all the peoples of the earth, his goal to bring all peoples back into fellowship with himself, back into submission to his own rule, his own authority. That was the original message to Abraham. Abraham, you and your family and your family's families, they will all serve as my partners to bless all the families of the earth, right? To bring everyone together under my authority. Now, what Paul is saying here in Philippians 3 is that there is a group of people who have come to Philippi, and we today, we call them Judaizers. But it's a group of people who have come to Philippi And they're proclaiming a message, they're preaching a message to this Gentile church that in order to really be saved, okay, in order to really be the people of God, they have to be circumcised. And what they're saying here is, really, in order to be God's people, these Gentiles must become what? They have to become Jewish. 
What they're saying is, you people, if you really want to be God's people, you have to be just like us because we are God's people. You have to look like us in every way. You have to obey the dietary laws. You have to obey all of it just like we do. You have to look like us. And this is where Paul is shouting, watch out, watch out, watch out. Because these Judaizers are advocating a system that instead of bringing people together under God, it divides them. Note how Paul calls these people dogs. Okay, this is, this is ironic, all right? Dogs was a, a derisive term, but it was a term that was most used by the Jews in referring to Gentiles. Okay, they called the Gentiles dogs. They were worthless trash in the eyes of the Jews. They were created to be burned in the eyes of the Jews. They were dogs. And that's what the Judaizers had done with the sign of circumcision. They had used that sign to describe themselves as children of God the beloved children of God, and they had used that sign to turn other people into worthless dogs. They had turned circumcision, which, which marked people as partners with God in the endeavor to unite humanity under His Lordship. They had turned it into concision, right? They had used it to cut up community, to mutilate it, to destroy it. And Paul says there is no place for that in the church of Christ. As proof of what this system does, Paul offers what? The example of himself, his very own life. And here he launches into this first-person language. And he describes himself in terms of what Tim Keller calls his resume. This is a resume system that he describes here. And we all know what a resume is, right? A resume is a list of all your credentials. It's a list of your accomplishments, your skills, your merits, your experience. What it really is, is it's an argument for why you should be let into something that you've always been shut out from, that you've always been excluded from. For instance, if you're, if you're trying to get into college, right, the doors of that college are closed to you until you prove that they should let you in. And so you present to them your resume. You show them your grades, your cumulative GPA, you show them your your SAT score, along with all the service work that you've done in your high school career and, and all of your extracurricular involvements, you put that all in your resume and you make your argument for why they should let you in. And Paul says that's what the system of circumcision had become for him. He had built a resume for why God should let him into his kingdom. And he's got quite a resume circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, he wasn't a convert. He was a Jew by birth. From the tribe of Benjamin, right? One of the favored sons. 
a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, he wasn't a Hellenized Jew. He wasn't a watered-down Jew. He was a Hebrew-speaking Jew. He was a Pharisee with regard to the law. In other words, he went way beyond the letter of the law. And as for zeal, persecuting the church, he says. In other words, Paul wasn't just a man of words. He wasn't just a pew-sitter. Okay? He was a man of action. He acted on his faith. He's got quite a resume. And all of these functioned as his argument for why God should let him into his kingdom, why he should allow Paul, of all people, back into fellowship with himself, with Almighty God, the Creator. But now, what Paul says is that I've come to see all of this as a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. It's all a loss compared to knowing Christ. It's so much less. My resume is so much less than knowing Christ. It's hooperecho less. It's beyond all understanding less than knowing Christ. And when we hear Paul say this, we have to understand that he's actually referring to two things. He's referring first to his own resume, but second, he's referring to this whole system of resumes and what it does to people. With regard to his own resume, he says that he's come to see it as rubbish. Okay, rubbish compared to the righteousness of Christ that we receive by faith. And you've probably heard this before, but the word that he translated as is rubbish or garbage, garbage here, that word in the Greek is really a much stronger word and far less genteel. Okay, it's more of a farm word. What Paul says is his resume is really a bunch of excrement. That's how he now sees it. He says, compared to the righteousness of Christ, I now see my own resume as excrement. And more than that, he says, imagine this with me. There was a time when I thought that, that handing God this stinking pile of manure would actually win him over to my side. That's what I thought. I thought if I just showed him what I had, this pile of you-know-what, he would smile and let me in. That's what I thought. But now he sees it differently. Now he sees his resume for what it really is. Why? How does he see that? Because he has seen what this kind of thinking leads to. He has seen what this whole system leads to. He's seen it in himself. It leads to concision. It leads to the cutting up of the body of Christ, literally. And that's what Paul was doing, right? In his own pride, and his own self-righteousness, he was persecuting the church. He was locking people up. He was chasing them off. He was stoning them to death. He was cutting up the church of Jesus Christ. He was working at cross-purposes with God, mutilating the body, the beautiful body of Christ that Jesus had brought together through His own suffering on the cross, Jews and Gentiles together under God, 
this beautiful body, Paul was cutting it up. Paul was killing it. And Paul says, any system, friends, any system that does that, that distinguishes children from dogs, worthy from the worthless, treasured from the trash, any system that does this is a pile of manure compared to being found in Christ. Haven't you found this to be true in your own life? Whenever we're forced into resume building, community often suffers. Actually, it always suffers. Divisions become standard. Why should we let you in? That's the question. Well, because, because I make a lot of money. Well, what about those who don't make money? Why should we let you in? Well, because I'm of a certain ethnicity. If you're not Dutch, you're not much. Why should we let you in? Well, because of my appearance. Well, what if your waist is larger than most? Why should we let you in? Well, because I look like you do. What about those who look differently? John Ortberg has a little fun with this idea of the system of resumes and what it does to us. Let me just read from his words because he says it better than I ever could. One day while sitting on an airplane, I saw a picture of our world. I was sitting in the front row of my section. Directly in front of me, there was another section of the plane. The people in that section sat in bigger seats. They ate nicer meals and better snacks. The flight attendants paid more attention to them. And the passengers there went by a different designation. They were called first class. They were first class people who got first class seating, food, and service. The rest of us, by contrast, were called coach. The differences between us and the first class people were clear to see. They ate on china, we ate off little plastic trays. They drank from crystal, we got plastic cups. They got warm, moist towels to cleanse their pores and refresh, refresh their weary faces at the end of the trip. We had to sit in our facial sweat. There was a curtain drawn between us, an iron curtain. This piece of immovable material could not be violated. There was no question that they were in the Holy of Holies and we were in the courtyard of the Gentiles. The first-class people even had their own restroom to provide for the needs of all four of them. The hundreds of cattle in the back of the plane, myself included, had to share two restrooms. I discovered this in a very personal way when I got up to use the restroom and discovered a line of people going down the aisle of the coach section. I asked the flight attendant, would it be okay since I'm, um, since I'm seated right near the front to use the restroom in the first class? And she said, no, that's first class. You can't go up there. I informed her that personal bladder control is not my strong suit and that she might want to consider letting me use the vacant bathroom in first class. She responded essentially by saying, do you see this curtain? This is the border, the Berlin Wall, and I'm Checkpoint Charlie. You will not be passing through. <laughs> 
That's what the system of resumes does, friends. It creates first class and everyone else. This isn't part of the system of circumcision. It belongs to the system of Babel. You probably remember the story of Babel, right? Genesis 11. Babel later becomes Babylon in the Bible. Babel wants everyone to be of one language, right? To not be scattered across the face of the earth. It sounds nice, doesn't it? Until you ask the question, well, who gets to choose the one language? And the answer is, well, whoever builds the tallest tower. They get to choose the language. They get, in fact, to call all the shots. Their language will be your language. And as Babylon proved later on, there are no exceptions to that rule. Remember Daniel. Daniel was taken as a slave into Babylon. What was the first thing he was told? You shall now be called Belteshazzar. You've been assimilated. You shall now be like us. And you'll do as you're told. When in Rome, you'll do as the Romans do or else. That's Babel. Your differences will divide you. They will make some great. They will make some dogs. And the strongest will decide who is who. But there is another system, isn't there? There's a system called knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. It's a different system. I want to know Christ, says Paul. I want to know someone who would take my stinking resume and exchange it for his. This is a system of love. I want to know Christ. I want to know the person who would do something like that for me. The other system is all about Paul, isn't it? It's all about, look at me, look at me, God, look at me, look what I've done. And this system of knowing Christ, it's all about Jesus. Listen to Paul. Look at him. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. I want to know Christ. I want to know this one who would actually take up a cross for me, who would, who would suffer for me and, and for people just like me. And for people not like me at all. I want to know Jesus. And I want to share in his sufferings. Paul, why would you want to share in his sufferings? Because I want to know his mind. The mind of Christ. And I want his mind in me. The mind of Christ, the mind that says, I will do anything, suffering, 
die. I will do anything to bless you, to lift you up, to give you life. I will do anything. The mind of Christ, the perfect image bearer of God, takes all that power, all that authority, all of that rule. He bows down on his knees and he says, how can I help you? He does it all to bless others, to lift others up, to give them life. Friends, this is a system very different from Babel. In this system, all of us are different and unique except for one thing, the mind of Christ. The people of Christ have in them the mind of Christ. And that's where you find the bigger story. This Jesus, he doesn't just save me from death, although that's such an incredible thing. But in life, he restores in me the very image of God where I become someone new who wants to rule in the name of God and use whatever I have for the lifting up and the blessing of others. And in restoring that image in me, we see him restoring that image in all of humanity. It's called the church. A place filled with all sorts of people, but also all sorts of people filled with the mind of Christ. Let's be that people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's in your righteousness that we stand before God. Only in your righteousness. And we marvel at what you have done to grant us that righteousness of your own. In fact, we marvel so much that we have fallen in love with you and we want your mind, that same mind that did all of that for us. We want that mind in ourselves. Grant us that gift through the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Almighty Father. Lord Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.